highlights for you about that a little bit later this month. Well, after I graduated from college, uh, my college roommate, he had bought a mobile home in a mobile home park, and he was not going to get married for about a month, and so he offered me a place to stay. And I said, sure, I'll take you up on that, because I was actually buying a mobile home across the street, and it was going to be my first home. And so I lived with him while I finished the transaction um, as I was starting graduate school, and it was finally an opportunity for me to be on my own. And as I, um, as I got as I obtained ownership and then walked through the place, I realized there's nothing inside this place when you walk through it except like walls and carpet. That's like it. And all of a sudden, the being on your own and the reality of being on your own hit me. Because although I was comfortable with making meals, that was a job that I had in, in college and graduate school, um, there were no dishes and there were no cups and there were no plates and there was no silverware. I would need all of these things. There was no bed in the bedroom and no dresser. There was no couch in the living room. And of course, the all-important TV didn't exist either. And um, did I forget to mention, there was no kitchen table and chairs either, you know. And so um, upon realization that I was going to need all of these things, um, I would assume that it was uh, my mother who contacted her dad, my grandfather, and um, somehow I ended up with a moving van at his door, and all these things that were in his basement that I think were headed for Goodwill or the curb, they ended up in my moving van. And so I got a 35-year-old mattress, and uh, I got a 50-year-old couch that was vinyl, seat, vinyl you know, pads on it. You know, I got some leftover dishes that, that didn't match, and uh, um, of course, somehow somebody managed to spring and, and release their 13-inch TV that I was able to take with me you know, to our first place. And so throughout that first year, I began to discover all of these things that you would need when you were on your own. It wasn't just as simple as saying, I'm going to be on my own. There was a whole boatload of things that came along with it. Did I forget to mention that the first time I came out of the bathroom, I realized, oh, I should probably get some curtains for the window before my fiance Christine, and I get married later next year and she moves in. That would be a good idea as well. But there's this thrill and excitement of being on our own. You know, of venturing out. And whether that's on your own when you get the keys to the car for the first time, you've got your license and you can go and you have no idea how much your parents are praying as you would go as you pull out of that driveway. Um, to uh, maybe it's your first job and you're on your own, your chance to make some money. Or maybe it's when you move out of mom and dad's house and maybe you finished college, some of you graduated this past weekend, and now you're venturing into your own place on your own. And so you have all these new experiences of being on your own. And there's something incredibly exciting, incredibly thrilling. But if you're really honest, there's a little bit of that that's very, very uncertain. And as you think about this transition and being on your own, this morning we're going to look at the story of a man who found himself, it appears to be, on his own as it relates to God. And, and there are times in our lives, no matter where you're at in your faith journey, that, that we don't want to be on our own with God. We want God to tell us what to do. We want God to give us direction. We would love to hear a voice from heaven saying, do this. But God is silent. And there's nothing said. And we wonder, where is he? And does he really know I'm kind of stuck here and I would really like some direction and some input? But nothing is coming. And the truth is that no matter where you are in your faith journey, most people at some point find themselves trying to get something from God as it relates to direction and God not showing up the way they would like Him to. Even Jesus on the cross, when He was there hanging on the cross with the sins of all of mankind, He cried out and said, God, where are you? You have forsaken 
and abandon me. And so this morning, we're going to dive back into the life of David and re-engage in his story. And, and I think this morning, no matter where you are on your journey of faith, I think that the story is going to surprise you with where it ends up. It's not one that I think we're all expecting. The story of David is a story that I've entitled Unlikely Hero. It's a story of a young man who wasn't prepared to be a hero, wasn't prepared to step up, wasn't prepared to be, have his name celebrated by thousands of people, much like the stories of superheroes that are popular today. But he got tapped on the shoulder and said, I have a job for you to do while he was simply out on the hillsides of Judea taking care of the sheep. And God said, I want you to go and I want you to fight for me against a nine-foot giant. And the result of that was great praise and uh, positions of honor and privilege and authority and responsibility at a very, very young age. The result was that was his name was celebrated. People were cheering for him. The song of the day was Saul, the king of the day, has killed his thousands. David's killed his ten thousands. The result of that was incredible jealousy on the part of King Saul, and he attempted to track David down and have him killed. David literally ran for the hills and attempted to hide from Saul, but he wasn't being very successful. And so that's where we're going to enter the story this morning. If you have a Bible with you, if you turn to 1 Samuel 27, 27, if you don't have a Bible, our guys have some, and they'll pass them out and make them available to you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we encourage you to take this with you as our gift to you, and then just mark this somehow and go back and read over this during the week. You can also follow on your phone or tablet as well. 1 Samuel 27. 1 Samuel 27. And so we're going to pick up the story after David has had several encounters where it seems like Saul is getting close. He's getting close. One time, at least on two different occasions, Saul, David is hiding in the back of a cave and Saul ends up in the front of the cave. He's that close to him. And David escapes. And so he's had a couple of near misses, close calls, where he just got away. And so 1 Samuel 27 verse 1 is really the first place where we get to hear what's going on in David's head. You're like, well, he had to be thinking about other things this whole time. You're absolutely right, he was. And those are recorded for us in the book of Psalms. And this summer, we're going to look at the heart and soul of David. We're going to look at some Psalms that were written during the time he was on the run from King Saul and see what was going on inside of this man who the Bible says was a man that pursued after God when he was in a tough place. And so 1 Samuel 27, verse 1, is the first place we get some of David's thoughts. Look at his thoughts. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. He said, I can't run forever. It's inevitable that he's going to catch me. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in the land of Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Now, there's no evidence at this point, based on David's wrestling, that he believes God's going to rescue him. He knows a while back that that. This guy had showed up at his house, the prophet Samuel, and said, of all the sons of Jesse, you will one day be the king. But there is no campaign to get him there anytime soon. And so he's wondering, how is this going to happen? It doesn't appear that there's any way that it's going to happen, and I somehow simply have to save my neck. And if you listen to David, what he's saying, he just sounds pretty pragmatic. He said, maybe this is going to be my lot in life. 
I know he anointed me king, and maybe that'll happen, but maybe this is just the way things are going to be for me. And maybe you're at one of those places in your journey right now. Maybe you've been battling some health issues, and, and the doctors keep saying, you're going to get better, and this is where you're going to... We think this can get turned around, and, and you're like, maybe this is where I'm going to be at. It's not where you thought you would be. Or maybe you're battling some things with your kids, and it just doesn't seem to get any closer, and you keep trying to do the things that others encourage you in counseling, and you're like, maybe we're just going to struggle in this area. Or maybe you and your spouse just aren't on the same page and you've tried and you can't seem to get there and, and you feel a sense of resignation that maybe that this is as good as it's going to get you know, right now. And so David seemed to be in one of those places that provides us a certain degree of comfort because it appears to be part of the human existence that at times we get to these places where we can't figure out how to get out of them and we just have to try to find a way to navigate through them. And David says, if I'm off of Saul's radar, other responsibilities will occupy the head of state, and maybe, just maybe, he will forget about me. And so what, hap what happens? What does David do in verse 2? It says, David and the 600 men with him left, went over to Achish, king of, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his own family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. So who's Achish? Who is he? Well, he was, one of, he was the king. He was the leader of the Philistine people. And the Philistines were at that time the people of Israel's arch enemies. And so David went to his arch enemy, the king of Philistine, and said, hey, can I come hang out in your country for a little while? Now, that seems a little odd. It seems a little strange. Um, it says that he was the king of Gath, which is one of the cities in um, the land of the Philistines. Uh, there was a really, really tall guy who was from Gath a few par uh, earlier in the story. Anybody remember his name? Tall guy by the name of Goliath. That's where he was from, his hometown. So David basically goes to his arch enemy and says, can I live here with my men. Now, that seems a little odd that this would happen, but just take a moment and think about the logic of it. Um, I'll use a sports analogy to help you understand. So, so Eagles fans kind of understand this because last year during the offseason, their arch enemy, the Dallas Cowboys, had a free agent by the name of DeMarco Murray, who the Eagles signed for this ridiculous amount of money, and the Eagles fans were just glad, what, that the Cowboys didn't have him on their team. It didn't turn out too well this past year. But just imagine if Tony Romo said, I'm sick of playing for the Cowboys. I don't want to play for them anymore. And he contacted the, the Eagles management and said, hey, any chance that you guys would be interested in, I'll even sign below market value. Just, I just want to play for you guys. And considering the Eagles' current Cowboy, the current quarterback situation, you know, that probably wouldn't be a bad deal. I mean, think about who David was. David was the top battle warrior the top military leader. David never lost. He was undefeated. And he said, I'll come work for you, essentially as a mercenary. What do you think? What do you think? Now, if you put yourself in Achish, he's like, man, this is awesome. Achish is like, 
how did this, I don't know how this happened, I don't know why, but sure, come on over, you know, bring them all over, bring the whole clan over, you know. All 600 of his men came over. And notice what happened in verse 4, exactly what David hoped would happen. Saul stopped hunting him down. Exactly what David wanted to have happen, happened. Exactly. Think about the irony of that. A king who is Israel's enemy, provides safe haven for their future king. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. You know, if I were planning this story, maybe I'd find a way to take Saul out. Well, that's going to happen in a few chapters. Or, or give David a safe place to hide. But to hide amongst your mortal enemy just seems like an odd, odd, odd plan. But it pictures for us a little bit of the way that God works in people's lives. You know, if you spend time at all reading the Bible, one of the things you discover is God has no limits. He's not limited by the physical universe and the limits that we experience. He's not limited by people who are for Him or against Him. God uses all of these things to accomplish His plan so that He gets the glory for that. And over and over again throughout history, God will use pagan nations, nations that have no concern for the God of the universe, no concern for the God of Israel, and He will use those nations to accomplish His purposes. And I hope you don't lose sight of that, especially in this current political season that we are in. Because regardless of your political party, regardless of the political outcome, I hope as people of faith that we have a firm conviction that God will do what God's going to do, regardless of even who's in our White House. And that's what, that's what David was experiencing here. That it didn't matter if it was his arch enemy that God was going to make something happen. So what happens in the story? So verse 5, David says to Achish, If I found favor with you, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. And David lived in the territory a year and, 14, a year and four months. And so what happened, there's a map that's going to come up on the screen here for you to take a look at. Um, David was over in the land of Philistia, which is where the Philistine armies were. And about at the end of the Yellow Arrow, that's about where, uh, where Gath was located. And so David just went a little bit to the, to the south there, to the city of Ziklag. That's where he was located. And you can see the kingdom of Saul is that other larger area that David had been a part of and, the, and where he had been running and hiding from Saul. And so David says, can I have this place to live in? If you think about it, David's with 600 of his men, and they each have a family. So I calculated there's probably between 2,500, 3,000 maybe people that are part of this group that they need a place for them to live, to re literally resettle is what we're talking about happening. And so that's what takes place in the story here. And so what does David do when he's down there? Well, look in verse 8. David and his men went up, and they raided the Gershuites the Gerzites and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. 
Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys, camels, and cloths. And then he returned to Achish. And so what did David do? Well, what David did is David, if we can go to the next map, go a little bit ahead to the next map, Lintha. David, what he did is he went and he um, was involved in battle raids against the enemies of the people of, of Israel. And so he went down, you can see the Kenites, uh, Kenites are down there, the, um, the Amalekites are down there. Um, he, these are all nations that are to the south of the land of Israel, going down towards Egypt. And he highlights the Amalekites. The Amalekites, if you, if you want to go back and read in Exodus chapter 17, when the people of Israel were leaving the land of Egypt and heading to the promised land, they attacked the people of Israel. It was an unprovoked attack. And it's a story there where um, God instructed um, Aaron and her to hold up Moses' hands. And as long as Moses' hands were held up, then the people of Israel, even though these were slaves running for their lives, they defeated the Amalekites. And God says, because you attacked my people in an unprovoked way, God said, um, we're going to take care and wipe these people out. And so earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul, as the king of Israel, was instructed to do that by God. He failed to finish the task. He took all the stuff, but he left everybody live, which from our perspective would be very humanitarian. But from God's perspective, he said, these are people that oppose God and oppose my people, and he said, they must be destroyed. And so now what David was doing is David was involved in raids to the south in which he would do that. So then he comes back after a raid, and he comes back to report to the king. What does he say to the king? By the way, I'm wiping out of some... Uh, and these, the Amalekites and all these nations that were down there, they were, um, uh, they were partners with the Philistines to defeat the people of Israel. That's the best way to understand them. Okay, They were partners. And so he said they weren't defeating the Philistines, but he was defeating his partners in battle. So what does David say when he comes back in verse 10? When Achish asked him, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, against the Negev of Jeremiel, against the Negev of the Kenites. He didn't leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. But the word Negev simply means desert. That's what it means. So it's the people of the desert. And so if we can go to the map there, you can see that the, the people that were... That, that there we go. You can see the Kenites who are down there, and some of these other nations are located in that area. Achish thought they were going over to defeat enemies who were people that were just in the southern part of Saul's kingdom. David was going a little bit further south and defeating the Philistines' teammates or partners in this battle against the land of Israel. He would defeat them. He would take all the spoils of war. He would um, kill all the people in the village so that no one could tell them what had taken place. And so think about what David is doing. David is basically living the life of a double agent in our military context. He was living in one country that wasn't his own, telling the people of that country, this is what I was doing, when he was actually doing something to help and benefit his own countrymen in this battle. And so as you listen to this story of David, you're like, how did this guy end up in this role? He went from the military leader to now he's basically a double agent. And you're wondering, when is he going to get caught? Who's going to figure out this scheme? There's got to be somebody that's going to slip through the cracks and tell us what's going on so that Achish is going to figure this all out. And it doesn't happen. 
And he does this for 16 months. 16 months is how long this takes place. And as you think about this story, you're kind of scratching your head a little bit, thinking, okay, genocide, deception, lies, where's God in all of this stuff? God doesn't seem to be anywhere present. It's a bit confusing. But Achish really trusts David. Look what Achish goes on to say in verse 12. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He's become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites. He will be my servant for life. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, Then you will see for yourselves what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, I don't know much about Achish other than what the Bible tells us, but this guy was getting snowed. I mean, literally, is what was happening. I mean, he's all excited because he gets Israelites' best warrior to come and fight for him. He thinks he's helping him defeat his enemies, and he's actually wiping out his own teammates. And Achish thinks, I hit the jackpot. He said, you're going to be my bodyguard. You're going to be my servant for life. And that's the situation David found himself in. And so as you think about this story, where David appears to be on his own, there's no reference to God anywhere in this story. Anywhere. And God had promised David that he was going to be Saul's successor, but there's no evidence that this is going to happen. And without God's input in his life, David appears to have to have made, to have to make the best decision he can in the, circum, in the situation that he finds himself. And he uses his logic and his diplomacy to make that happen. You say, what do you mean, John? Well, go back and look in verse 5. In verse 5, David shows up to his enemy, King Achish, and says, can we come live with you? And then David says, and by the way, do you have a place that we can live? Achish proceeds to give him a city, which the text tells us became a city that was ruled by the kings of Judah for all of their days. How did This king just handed over a city to David. How did that happen? You know how you got a city in that day? You would fight for the city, and you would surround the city, and you would withhold water and food, and eventually you would, what, conquer the city, right? Or you would trade something. We've got something you want, you've got something we want. We'll trade for the city. That's not what happened. The city was just granted to David, Achish's enemy, simply because he asked. I don't know about you, but it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. There's no moral analysis of David. He lied, he deceived, and there's no critique of his actions. And again, it leaves us a bit confused. You say, what do we know about David from this story? What you know about David from this story is that he was wise and he was crafty, and he was cunning. We know that David was a military leader. David weighed his odds. He said, if I keep running in the hills, guess what's going to happen? Saul's going to one day get the drop on me, and I'm going to be done for. So I'm going to wait, hedge my bet, and I, you know what? I think I am better have a better chance to be safe with the Philistine king, and so that's where I'm going to go. We don't have any evidence of God telling David, why don't you go stay with the Philistine king? He'll give you safe haven for a little while. No evidence of that at all. And so as you read this story of David, what are you left with? 
you're left with his using his his mind and his intellect and his wisdom to come up with a solution that was the best option for him in that day. You say, John, was, was God trusting, was David trusting God during this time? I don't know. I don't know. There's no evidence of it in this story. Now, I think when we get to the Psalms a little later this summer and we look at the heart and soul of David, we're going to see a little bit different side of that. But for right now, I think we conclude that David made wise judgments in difficult times when God was silent and he was left on his own. We all have to make decisions in life. And we all have kind of a unique way that we're wired to make decisions. One of the things that Christine and I do when we're with couples that are preparing to get married and we spend some time counseling them is we talk to them and try to help them understand the unique way in which they're wired to make decisions. And there's two unique ways. We're all wired one of these two ways to make decisions. Some of us make decisions by the gut. We just kind of instinctively know what the right thing to do is. We don't always know the logic. We don't always have rationale for it. We might not always have empirical evidence for it, but we just kind of know by the gut, this is the right thing that I should do. Okay? There's another way that we make decisions, and that is a logical, rational decision. We look at the facts, we lay out the evidence, we come to conclusions, and we decide. And we're all wired one direction or the other. Okay? Now, if you don't know, ask your spouse. They know which way you make decisions. Or kids, ask your parents. But how many of you think that you are probably um, by the gut decision makers? Let me see your hands. Put them up boldly. No, no need to be ashamed. Okay, put them up boldly. Okay? You can see there's men, women all across the room. Okay? It's not gender specific. All right? Now, how many of you think that you're logical, rational decision makers? Let me see your hands. Okay? Kind of see them around the room as well. Um, which one do you think I am? Which one do you think I am? Logical or by the gut? Which one? Oh, you guys got it right. By the gut. I'm a by the gut decision. First service thought I was logical. They are the, but I, I must have fooled them. I don't know how I fooled them. But I'm a by the gut decision maker. You know, that's kind of the way I'm wired. And, and I've learned over time from my wife and from others how to make logical decisions. But my, my natural tendency is to say this just feels right. This is the right thing to do. Now, the important thing to understand is there's not a right and wrong way to make decisions. It's not right or wrong. It's the unique way God has wired you. And they both have great value. You see, a by-the-gut decision maker, these are individuals that it's much easier for them to trust God when they can't see the evidence. It's much easier for them to take a step of faith and say, I think this is what God wants us to do. I'm not clearly understand why. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I just believe this is what God... Their faith is usually stronger to trust God in that way. In the same way, logical decision makers, they look at the facts. They look at the evidence and they say, I am going to do what God wants me to do because I have evidence that this is what he, He's done in the past and He'll do this in the future. And so they trust God but in a very different way. And so it's important not to see one way as right and one way as wrong this morning. But as we look at the story of David, and as I wrestled with this story and said, what is the point of this story, and what do we walk away with as we look at David's life this morning? I want to talk to the the by-the-gut decision-makers this morning, okay? So if you're a by-the-gut decision-maker, pay attention. If you're a logical, rational, you can just sit and listen, but this really isn't for you, okay? But I think this story about David this morning, 
who I think you could probably argue he goes one direction or the other because sometimes he makes snap decisions, you know. Um, But I think the story by David this morning illustrates the times in life when you need to make a logical, rational decision. I mean, anybody that knows me knows that if you come to me and talk to me about a problem, we're going to talk about God's perspective on it. We're going to say, where's God leading you? We're going to pray about it. Someone came in my office this week and said, John, I'm faced with this big job decision. Can we just pray about it? And we did. But there are times in life where even though you do that, you get no clear direction from God. You don't get a voice from heaven. You don't get a verse in the Bible. And, and some of you sit who are by the God to see you're so compelled by that. You're like, God, I need to hear from you. I need to hear you kind of put out this fleece and that fleece. And God, give me this sign and that sign. And, and sometimes God says, you know what? I think you need to look at the evidence and lay it out and decide. You say, how do I do that? Well, there's two important components for those of us that are by the gut decision makers. The first important component is you can't make that decision quickly. You can't make that decision quickly. Those of us that are by the gut decision, we can make a quick decision and go and we'll run with it and we won't, no turning back, right? No turning back. We don't think twice about it. And if it doesn't work out, oh, well, that's just the way life happens, you know. Whereas the logical, rational, they, they, the thought of making a bad decision just paralyzes them. You know, we're like, ah, who cares? It'll work out. You know, we'll just go with it, you know. But so those of us that operate and make decisions, we have to learn to wait. We have to learn to wait. I said, what do you mean by wait? Well, one of the things that we tried to teach our kids when they were younger, especially about money, because kids when they're younger, especially certain kids, money burns a hole in their pocket, right? They got money, man, they got to spend that money. And so they're out and they got to go buy something. And so we tried to teach our kids this rules. When you want something, you have to wait 24 hours before you spend that money. And um, that was a good lesson for me because I didn't do that. Now I do that. Um, So I taught my kids and I learned something along the way. And so what happens in that waiting? What happens in that waiting is you get perspective. You see it differently. You learn to understand. You, you make, your decision can get changed very quickly in just a 24-hour period of time. And so one of the critical things in a by-the-gut decision maker to, to, to learn to do it in a different way is to wait. There's a second component, and that is to seek wise counsel. The Bible talks about this over and over again. You see, the logical, rational decision makers, they do that naturally. They, they analyze, they get input, they get counsel, they weigh it all out, they look at the pros and cons. But those of us that are by the gut, we don't really do it that way. We go and ask for advice, but we only do that because we know we're supposed to. We don't listen to them anyways because we just know we're, we're, we're right because it's by the gut, you know. And so we have to learn to have the humility to say, even though my gut is telling me this... I'm going to listen to godly counsel about this decision in front of me. As I look at this story of David, it appears to me that what David does in this situation, when God is not talking to him, God is silent. David uses the mind and the intellect and the wisdom that God has given him to make the best decision to make the best decision you know one of the one of the most empowering things I can do for someone who volunteers or that I'm overseeing or that I lead 
when they come to me with a decision that I know the answer to is for me to say, you decide. You decide. You decide. One of the most empowering things for me to say to one of my kids when they come to me with the decision and I, and I, know what the, I, I think I know what the right answer is to say, what are you going to do? What do you think you should do? And why? There's something very empowering about that. There's something freeing about it. There's something, um, something transformational that happens. And do I think that we need to turn to God for wisdom? Absolutely. Do I think we need to listen for the voice of God to guide us? Absolutely. Solomon says in Proverbs, he says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on what? Your own understanding. But I also believe that there are times in our lives where God says to us, I've given you a mind, I've given you an intellect, I've given you the wisdom to make the best decision possible. Now you decide. You decide. Is it possible that our faith could be stretched and we can grow in those times when God says, it's time for you to decide. I wonder if that's the case in this story in the life of David. And so as you face decisions that are in front of you, regardless of the way that you're wired, but especially for those of us that are by the gut decision makers, it might be a bigger step of faith for you in this moment in time to say, God, I'm going to use the wisdom, the counsel that I've been provided, and I'm just going to decide. And I'm going to trust you with the outcome, whatever that's going to be. And as we close this morning, I want all of you to just take a moment and think about the decisions that are in front of you. The reality is, is all of us in this room have some kind of decisions that are facing you in the next three, six, nine, or 12 months. Maybe you're a student and you played a sport this fall and you're like, man, that consumed all of my time and do I want to do that moving forward? Or you're evaluating some class scheduling that could make a difference in terms of what college looks like. Maybe some of you are looking at job options. Maybe some of you who've just graduated are looking at what's next and you're weighing lots of decisions that are in front of you. Maybe you've got a career decision that in the next 12 months could change. A housing decision, a financial decision, a family decision. I mean, life can change drastically in the 12-month window, but what's, gonna, what's coming at you that you at least at this moment in time anticipate might happen. And then second of all, the second question for you to consider is does God appear to be with you or do you feel on your own? Maybe you've been talking to God about this and, and you feel like God's kind of pointed the way for you. Or this is one where you, you know, God, I, I've been asking, I've been praying, I've been asking, I've been praying, not getting anything, God. I don't know. I don't know. If that's your situation, look at this last one. Who do you need to turn to for wisdom if you find yourself in an on-your-own decision? Who do you need to turn to for godly wisdom? And when you're looking for someone to seek godly wisdom from, my words and advice are always this. Look for someone who is where you want to be. 
Don't ask one of your buddies who's in the same dilemma you are with no more advice than you have yourself. Look for someone who is where you want to be and say, how did you get from here to there? And learn from them. As we close this morning, I want to... Uh, I want to just give you a moment to sit quietly with the things that I've said this morning. Maybe you need to talk to God and say, God, I, I don't, I'm not hearing anything from you, and I know this seems kind of crazy, but it seems like maybe you're trusting me to just decide. And, and that's, that's a little scary, because I'd like to know you're leading me, but I have to decide, God. Or maybe it's just to say, God, who's where I want to be? Who can I ask some advice from and pick their brain and learn from and maybe get some real wisdom from? God, as we look at the life of David, it's kind of an odd story that leaves us a bit with more questions than answers. Some questions that I didn't even dive into this morning. And yet we know that the, the, the reputation of David is that he's a man after God's own heart. And... Um, so what does he do when God doesn't show up in the story? Lord, I pray that as we walk away with this and we walk away with the decisions that are in front of each of us, that um, we would recognize that there's some times when you just trust us enough to say, I want you to decide on this one. And Lord, for some of us, that's really scary and it will require a big step of faith because we don't trust ourselves very well. So give us the courage. Give us the capacity. To know how much you love us and that you are for us when we need to do that on our own. In your name we pray. Amen. As the band comes forward to lead us in a song to close, you know, when we are faced with those kinds of decisions, um, and we step up and we do it, we decide. Um, something can be very frightening about that, but something that can be very freeing about that. And so as we uh, sing this last song, just as an opportunity to close uh, the service this morning. Um, I hope you think about those things. Johnny? Thanks, John. Let's all stand as we celebrate the freedom in not being so stressed out about those decisions, but just relying on God and, and, um, and just trusting in that journey. Whatever the journey is, He already knows it anyway, so let's just enjoy that.